Hey everybody, and welcome back to the All Things All People podcast, where we're talking to Christian thinkers or we're Christians thinking. I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for listening. Uh, it has been amazing the last couple weeks to see the level of support that the podcast has gotten. Um, honestly, just really surprising uh, when you when you put something like this out and you think maybe a few people will like it and the support has been immense and I think it's only going to get even better. Uh, I think you are really going to be amazed at some of the people here in the next month or two who are going to be interviewed on this show and we're doing our best to make sure to include the questions that you have, the topics that you want to hear on the Thinking Christians episodes like today. So if you really enjoy this podcast, make sure to go and review it or like it or share it, uh, especially if you have iTunes. The crazy thing about the podcast world that most people don't know is that iTunes really kind of runs the show. They're like the podcast mafia. You would think that Spotify would have already kind of caught up a little bit in market share. But iTunes, or uh, I guess it's not even iTunes anymore, but Apple Podcasts really dominates it. So uh, lovingly to all my iPhone friends and family and fans, I guess, uh, if you have an iPhone or a MacBook, go give it five stars, you know, and I don't know, maybe type something out nice that you like, you know, or just be honest. I mean, if you think it's a four star thing, that's fine, too, I guess. But I mean, just as a personal favor to me, if you want to give it five, that'd be great, too. So but, you know, anyway, like uh, if you like this and you think it's worth listening to for other people who are interested in this type of stuff, go ahead and give it a share on Facebook, Insta, whatever. And make sure to go follow me at allthings.allpeople on Instagram. Um, I have a lot of people asking me, like, when I'm going to up my social media game, hit Twitter, do more stuff on Facebook. But I'm just going to be real with you. Like, I'm the type of person that if I don't really want to do something, like if I'm not passionate about it, uh, I can start off really strong, but uh, I might not, you know, finish strong if I'm not passionate about it. And I just, I really don't like Facebook and some of these other social medias. Like, I'm, I like Instagram for some reason. I think it's easy. So I have a pretty strong presence over there. So if you're listening to this and somehow or another you don't follow me on Instagram, I think it's worth it. You know, I spend a little bit of time on my Instagram. So go check it out. And then also you're going to know what's going on uh, next week. Next week we have an awesome guest on the pod. I'm really, really excited um, to, to talk to her. And uh, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to do that. But uh, today we're talking about sacred texts, stories, and splits. Hitting some questions that were emailed and submitted on Instagram. And we're talking about holy books, the sources of belief for billions of people around the planet. So I hope that you enjoy it. Like I said, if you enjoy it, do something about it. Don't just talk about it, be about it. And uh, it's going to be a good one. So let's, let's get to it. So our first question submitted by Sa- at Sasha like the cat on Instagram is what does canon mean exactly? Okay, so canon. First thing you hear is probably C A N N O N, like canon, like medieval or uh, you know, basically historic weapon that shoots out huge lead balls at enemies. That's not what we're talking about. Okay, so it's it's actually spelled C A N O N and it and it's canon. Um, but the the biblical canon. Um, or you might hear somebody if if you follow a show like if you follow like maybe movies like Star Wars or um Lord of the Rings or, you know, stuff like that. I remember this was big uh, when I was in college and we, everybody watched Lost. And the question or another was like, 
was that topic or was that plot that came up was that canon you know like so like i think about all these star wars manifestations from the old movies to what disney's doing now and all the books that and, and the question's always you know, if, if a book comes out, is that canon? Is that actually part of the story? And so the same thing happens with the Bible and really all other holy books. Um, but especially in Christianity, the, the argument over what is canon, and it's, it's basically just what is involved in the actual story. Um, so the biblical canon is the collection of scriptural books that God has given his corporate people, which are distinguished by their divine qualities, reception by the collective body, and their apostolic connection, either by authorship or association. That definition comes from the Gospel Coalition, which is a wonderful resource for you to check out. But So basically, that, get, that gives it a great summing up. Um, so at, throughout history, the church has recognized certain books that need to be involved in uh, what you and I would call the Bible or the collection of Holy Scriptures. And of course, though, right, there's standards. There's certain standards that should be met that need to be met. And people argue, of course, over what these books are. And, and where you're going to find the biggest differences, of course, in the biblical canon is between Catholics and Protestants. And, and so... Um, the biblical canon that Protestants accept today is different than the uh, than the Catholic canon. Um, no surviving text. There's, there's a guy in the first century um, after the life of Jesus named Josephus. He's a Jewish historian who gets quoted a lot in in arguments because like anytime you can find a historical source that's that's close to what you're talking about is good. Um, so in regards to the old Testament canon, it was agreed upon pretty early. Like, so what we accept as the old Testament canon, um, was is as far as we can tell was more or less agreed upon by the first century, um, or, or the time of Christ, uh, Josephus in, in his text against Apion, which is around the nineties AD, uh, gives the specific number of texts considered reliable at 22, um, which interestingly enough, Christians divide texts in the old Testament. So like, you know, they'll put first and second on a text like Samuel or Kings um, or Chronicles and Jews uh, typically don't. Um, and so the text listed in, in Josephus's against Apion is 22, which when accounting for the fact that Christians typically divide these these Old Testament books uh, is, is the exact same number that we use in the Protestant Old Testament. Um, and so. Uh, so we we have good reason to think that by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament was agreed upon, at least in the area of Israel and Palestine. And so that same list that Josephus offers is uh, is a pretty good guess at what exactly was included in the Old Testament. Um, and interestingly enough, right, when we're talking about uh, scripture in the Old Testament, then the really heated topic at least, uh, you know, for some people is, okay, so what gets accepted into the New Testament? And if you can just imagine for a brief moment that, you know, the apostles followed Christ and then they, you know, watched him be killed and then they they spent time with him in, res in his resurrected form and then he ascended and then, you know, they got to business. They got to spreading the gospel and they started writing letters and they started writing things down. And throughout time, it was started, you know, it started to become important to figure out, okay, like, what do we count as scripture? And you'll hear all the time about these, uh, 
these, uh, you know, other gospels, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of Judas. Um, and you'll even hear people calling into question, like some of the writings of Paul. Um, it's important to realize that in second Peter, Paul or Peter actually refers to Paul's letters as scripture. So think about this. This is a, a, a Jewish guy who would have had a very high view of the text. Um, the old Testament specifically. And here he is using the same word to, that he would use to describe the books of the Torah, the law. And he uses that to describe Paul's letters. Um, and that shows that, that a collection of Paul's letters were already in circulation and regarded is on par with Old Testament books. And so we, we see that early on in the life of the church in the New Testament, they, there was already collecting of some of these letters. Uh, similarly, 1 Timothy 5, uh, so this is Paul to Timothy, uh, cites a saying of Jesus as scripture. Uh, so we're not just talking about anymore that the words of Jesus are important, but Paul is writing to his you know beloved disciples saying that the words of Jesus are, are scripture. They are on par with the Old Testament. And by the second century, so, you know, it's kind of confusing sometimes because people think second century and they think, oh, year 200s. But no, the second century would have been um, 100 AD and on. We see that 22 of the 27 New Testament books that we accept as Christians already being used in the early church. And so that means that there's really only five that there was contention over even as early as the second century, which would have been you know, less than a hundred years from the life of Christ. Um, and the exact 27 books were not agreed on until, uh, AD 367. Um, and then that the Canon that we know the 27 new Testament books was for, formally ratified only in 393 at the council of Hippo and in 397 by the council of Carthage. And so before year 400 AD, we have the 27 books being nailed down. And now the contention, the reason it only took that long was there was disputes over those five books that weren't in the 27. And so the reason why that those, there would have been contention was the, the church fathers would have been looking at, okay, so how widely are these books used? Are, are most Christians using them? How closely can we associate these books with apostles? So if like you think about Peter, um, and, and if, and if a church father has good reason to think that Peter wrote, um, first Peter, for instance, there would be little reason to not include that in the canon. So they would, they would spend much time debating over, okay, is this actually from Peter? And there's a lot of scholars who think second Peter, uh, they, they doubt, um, Peter's authorship in second Peter. And that goes all the way back to even before the council of Carthage and, and the council of Hippo, um, you know, but, and then in the case of like Luke and Mark, these are people who traveled with apostles. And so their, their, their accounts, their, um, you know, especially in the case of Luke, their telling of things is, is, is really important because these are people who lived with the apostles. And so the question being what exactly is canon is what, what and how did those books become accepted? And, and, and how did we end up with the Bible that we have today? So you'll see that, I mean, uniformly, like, Christians agree on the New Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Some outside scholars doubt uh, the authorship of some of them. And, uh, you know, there's a constant debate on that. But you'll, you won't find many Christians debating the usage of those 27 books. We're like, like I said, the divide comes in with our next question, um, which, which comes from at Sasha Like the Cat as well. But why did the Catholic Church push 
to have the Apocrypha. Now, if you're a Catholic listening to this, don't start writing angry comments yet, okay? Um, I want to say this something to my, my, my Protestant followers. First off, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that the Catholic Church pushed to have the Apocrypha. Okay. And I also think that we need to be careful. Like we Protestants call the, the extra, um, books in the Catholic old Testament, which would be Tobit, Judith, wisdom, Sarak, Baruch, and first and second Maccabees. We would call this the Apocrypha. Um, but the word apocryphal, uh, going back to, you know, the question about star Wars and, and lost is if something's not Canon, it is apocryphal, which means something of doubtful authenticity that is circulated as true. So it's something that's not included in the story. Now, as a Protestant myself, I would say I, for, I have good reason to believe that I don't think these books should be included. But when I'm with my Catholic friends, I'm, I'm hesitant to call them apocryphal only because these people actually do think that they're scripture. And so not that I, you know, say like, oh, I agree with them when, because I don't want to hurt their feelings, but I would just say we have to think sometimes about how we present our ideas is that like, unless you are ready to explain why you don't think that these books should be included, you should be very hesitant to throw around, throw around words like apocrypha or apocryphal because, because we just, we just use that word. We never really think about what it means. Um, and, and ultimately, as you're going to see the, the, the Protestants did think that these, these books were apocryphal. Um, and so, you know, we see that between Catholics and, and Protestants, we, we don't agree on the old Testament. And as I said, they include books like Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, and First and Second Maccabees, plus sections of Esther and Daniel, which are absent from the Protestant Old Testament. Um, and Protestants refer to these writings as the Apocrypha. So uh, the way that this came about, before the second century, most Palestinian Jews, or you know, Jews in and around the area that was Israel, accepted a canon similar to what we now consider the Protestant Old Testament. But Greek-speaking Jews, now remember that the language of Rome was Greek for the most part, and the language of the New Testament was Greek. Greek was written, the, the written language. So Greek-speaking Jews all over uh, the Roman Empire accepted the canon, the collection of scriptures that was found in the Greek Septuagint. And now the Septuagint was a second century BC. Okay, so this is 200 years before Christ shows up. Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, as we know, it would have been written first and foremost in Hebrew for the most part. And so what uh, Greek scholars did two, 200 years before Christ shows up is they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And it's a really interesting thing, like New Testament, um, like, like, Protestant scholars use the Septuagint all the time. Um, it's a really interesting thing because you can look at it in Greek, such a complex language that, you know, like it's interesting to see what the, the Septuagint scholars, the writers used for the Hebrew texts. Um, interestingly enough, it's, it's so interesting that Paul often used the Septuagint um, as opposed to the Hebrew Old Testament or the Masoretic text. Um, so if you, if you think for a moment how often when you're reading Paul's letters, he quotes the Old Testament. Oftentimes when he quoted the Old Testament, it seems as if, as best as we can tell, that he was actually quoting the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why would he do that? Well, he was writing to Greek speakers. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't write in Hebrew to Greek speakers. You know, it wouldn't make sense. And one of the things I love the most about um, reading Paul is that 
you know, he, he's the reason why we, I call my ministry, all things, all people, because he said like, I, I've become all things to all people. And I think about in Acts 17, where he's standing at the Areopagus and he, he does his best to make people understand what it is he's saying. So, so of course he would write in Greek to Greek speakers in the first century. Uh, that being said, uh, just because Paul used the Septuagint doesn't mean that that is the quote unquote correct canon or collection uh, just because Paul used it. Evidence seems to suggest, like I've already said, that in and around Palestine uh, or wh- where Israel was, remember Israel essentially you know, ceased to exist when the Roman Empire destroyed the temple in AD 70. And, and so you know, in and around that time, it would have been called Palestine. Um, evidence seems to suggest that the Old Testament text in the first century, when Jesus would have been teaching in synagogues in and around Israel, would have been the, the Hebrew Old Testament the text that Protestants generally agree upon it. So what happened, this is why I said the the Catholics didn't push for the Apocrypha. And that's why I want to make sure that if if we're really trying to be Christians thinking, let's really, really think. Okay. So, you know, throughout the course of history, um, the church began early on to accept this Septuagint text, which was the Greek translation of the old Testament, because it was really popular because guys like Paul used it and because they could read it and they could understand it. But something interesting happened in the Protestant reformation because people started to think, okay, what was the old Testament that Jesus would have used? What was the, 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 the collected old Testament text that Jews would have used because Protestants really wanted to make sure that they were returning to what they considered the genuine faith, the the genuine text. And they, they kind of decided that, you know, just because this, this text, the Septuagint was, you know, a really good text and it was really interesting and it was widely accepted did not mean that it was the correct old Testament. And so uh, they went back to what's called the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew old Testament. And um, so they departed from what we now know to be the Catholic canon, which is includes what we would call the Apocrypha. And so when I say like Catholics didn't push for it, really it was, it wasn't Catholics pushing for it. It was Protestants rejecting those books because they wanted to return to what they considered the true origin text of the Hebrew old Testament, because they said, God revealed these words in Hebrew. Let's read them in Hebrew. Let's translate them from the Hebrew and not the Greek. So that's where I, I stand. And, and some of you probably disagree. That's cool. Um, this isn't something that, you know, affects our salvation or anything like that. But our view of scripture is really important, but I would say let's read the text in the language that God saw fit to reveal it in. And he didn't reveal it in Greek. He revealed it in he- in Hebrew. And so let's do our best to translate from the original languages. And so, so there you see, okay, so, so Christian canon, and then you see the huge differences between Catholics and Protestants, but also, you know, the Bible's not the only holy book in the world today. Uh, there's a lot of others. And I think most Christians probably are somewhat unfamiliar with a lot of them. Um, they might've heard of books like, um, the Quran in Islam. But one thing that's interesting, uh, when we talk about Judaism, if I, if I were to ask most people, what is the, the Jewish holy book, uh, most Christians and, and even a lot of Americans who aren't religious would say the old Testament. But like, once again, you know, if we're really trying to reach people and help them, you know, understand our faith, we should do our best to understand theirs. And it makes perfect sense that Jews would not call it the Old Testament. Why? Because if it's the Old Testament, it implies that there's a New Testament, and Jews don't believe there is a New Testament. They believe that the 
that the books of what we would call the Old Testament are the perfect canon. And so what they actually call is the Tanakh, um, which is essentially like, um, I don't know what you call it when you combine letters, you know, but like um, it, it's, it's short for T and K and it's the words for Torah, um, history, and then prophecy. And so they call it the Tanakh. Um, and so they don't call it the old Testament. Um, Hindus, Hindus are a fascinating group that I, I personally, it's one of my specialties in, in regards to what I study academically. Um, but Hindus and holy books are completely different relations. So you have books like the Vedas or the Rig Veda and the Bhagavad Gita, the Puranas, the Upanishads, but the, the Hindu relationship with holy scriptures is completely different than, um, Islam Judaism and Christianity, whereas the books are important, but they are not as central as they are in many of the Abrahamic faiths um, and even other faiths. Right. Um, you have uh, faiths like the Church of Latter-day Saints, where they they have the Holy Bible as they would accept it. Um, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price and the Do Doctrines and Covenants. So they actually have four, four holy books um, and, and they, they place a lot of central authority on the Book of Mormon. Um, maybe even more so than the Bible at times, because it's because Mormonism is a, a restorationist faith, similar to what we talked about with Jehovah's Witnesses last week. Where, and once again, right, if you're talking about holy books, Jehovah's Witnesses, right, that's the New World Translation. It's their own specific translation of the Bible, and there are more, right? In Eastern faiths like um, uh, Taoism or Taoism, you have Tao uh, Te Ching, um, which it, once again in Eastern faiths like they don't place as much emphasis on. Uh, on the authority of these texts. They don't carry them around like Christians carry the Bible and, and Muslims carry um, the Quran. Um, but, but it is important nonetheless. Um, and so um, let's talk for a few minutes about some of these other, these other faiths. Uh, a question from at Ernest Billy Graham on Instagram. What do other sacred books have to say about creation? This, this is a fascinating question. And, and one that, you know, I, I sometimes even hesitate to get into, like, I, I'm not a, biologist. I'm not a scientist. Um, so I always, I always bristle at interacting with other faiths, creation accounts, because if you're familiar with Christianity at all, you know, that even in our faith, there are a million different theories of what exactly happened at creation. Um, but it's interesting nonetheless, because it gives us an idea of, okay, so what are these people, if you can understand where someone thinks the universe and the world came from, you can understand a lot about them or at least how they think. So for instance, in Hinduism, um, and you know, sometime down the line we're, I get a lot of questions about Hinduism. And like I said, I study Hinduism. Um, Hinduism is like a misnomer. That word, if there's 1.2 or 1.3 billion Hindus in the world, there's 1.3 different Hinduisms. Okay. So like Hinduism is really more of a collection of South Asian religions in South Asia, specifically India. So anytime on this podcast that I say, uh, Hey, this is what Hindus believe. It comes with a disclaimer. It's like, but yeah, like a lot. And even sometimes most don't actually believe this exact thing. So, right. We're talking in, in generalized forms, but in Hinduism, uh, it's generally accepted. The universe is millions and millions of years old. Hindu belief in reincarnation, the cycle of rebirth, samsara, uh, means that the universe that we live in is not the first or even the last universe. They believe in a constant cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. And uh, so for Hindus, once again, at least most of them, the universe was created by Brahma God, which is the central God, um, the creating God, the all-powerful God. 
And so this came out of Brahma, like the universe is, is for many Hindus is part of Brahma and it, and it came out of him um, or it as part of the cycle of, of birth, life and death, Shiva, the God of destruction will ultimately destroy the universe. And so most Hindus believe that at some point this world's going to come to an end. And while that might be a, a scary thought for any human, even a Hindu who believes this, they don't live in fear of it because in that cycle of rebirth and birth and death and rebirth, destruction is seen as a good thing because this allows Brahma to start the process of creation all over again. And ultimately for most Hindus, that cycle of rebirth and creation and recreation is essentially endless. And that's where that cycle comes from. And so it's important if you're attempting to understand Hinduism and many Eastern faiths, it's cyclical. Whereas many Christians, Muslims, Jews, and, and, and really most Westerners in general think of history and what is to come as linear. One day all of this will end and it will really, really end. Whereas in much of Eastern philosophy and religion, it's cyclical. It will end and then it'll start again. In Islam, um, the creation account is very similar, right? If you know anything about the Quran, uh, Muhammad says that the angel Gabriel revealed the, the, the writings of the Quran to him progressively throughout time, starting in around 600 AD, um, or later, later in the seventh century, actually. And, uh, a lot of it, you know, began in a cave in Mecca and, but Islam proclaims itself as essentially, um, a restoration of Allah's true faith, which was corrupted by Jews and Christians. And so they would say that the Bible, um, as revealed by Allah is true, but they would say that Christians and Jews corrupted it and that Muhammad's revelation was a restoring of that. And so actually the creation accounts, there is no like Genesis account in the, uh, the Quran, like there is in Genesis one and two in the old Testament, but they, the, Quran does talk about it. Um, and there's some key differences, right? So for one, uh, Allah sent angels to earth to collect handfuls of soil, all different colors. And so with that soil, Allah made Adam. Um, and so right there, so you see a little bit of difference because, um, we don't see in Genesis that he, he sent angels to collect soil and it's different colors and these details that were added in the Quran. Um, we see that out of the dust, God made Adam. And so right there, you see a little bit of a difference. Adam and Eve disobeyed Allah, which is similar to Adam and Eve in the Old Testament disobeying God, um, but they were forgiven, uh, but were sent from paradise to earth, which Allah had created. And the earth was created to allow Adam and Eve and their descendants, the human race, to live and thrive. So we see a difference there. Um, the Garden of Eden is a really interesting topic. Much of Many of us are absolutely fascinated with it. Um, but nobody ever really says that the Garden of Eden in Christianity or Judaism was like on a different planet or in a different plane of existence. Uh, Islam seems to say that Earth, as we know it, was created so that Adam and Eve had a place to go live out their punishment. Um, also, is interesting too, especially as a Christian, we see that uh, Muslims to some degree believe in some level of forgiveness for Adam and Eve. I, I suppose that that would really be more so that they weren't killed for their sin. Um, but we do know that, you know, Muslims essentially do believe in a curse similar to Christians and that Muslims are trying to live and work off that curse. Whereas Christians believe that at some point through the cross and the resurrection, they are forgiven. But all that to say, we see differences in the Islamic creation account. And so, you know, we can't go through every, 
religion and, and show their creation account. But I would encourage you, like, just Google it sometimes. See, like, what, if you really, really want to learn about what a faith uh, believes, I would suggest Google, right, there what they believe, how, how they believe the cosmos came into existence, because that tells you a lot. And our, and our last question comes from at drummer guy on Instagram. He's a good friend of mine, one of the best youth pastors I know, but he hit me up and said, contrast Jesus in the Quran and in the Bible. What's different and why? So many Christians might not know that Jesus is all over the Quran. Like Muslims love him. All right. He's, he's a big figure in the Quran. And, but you know, Muslims view Jesus very, very differently. They, they view Jesus, um, as a prophet, a very high prophet, but he is second in stature to Muhammad. But they believe that he was born of a virgin. Um, they believe that he was God's chosen prophet to the people of Israel, to the Jews. Um, and it's important to know if we're really talking about holy books and sacred texts, how Muslims view this Quran that talks about Jesus so much. And they view the Quran as the unadulterated word of Allah. The Quran is the ultimate authority on life and should never, ever be questioned. And ultimately, if you're reading the Quran in a language other than Arabic, you're not actually reading the inspired version. They, would, they believe that the Quran in its unadulterated form is the perfect word of Allah. So whereas Christians um, make room for like, well, Paul wrote this and he writes things a little bit different. And then Peter writes this and he writes things a little bit different, but we believe in some form of inspiration uh, between both of them. They believe that every word written in the Quran came straight from the mouth of Allah through Gabriel and then through Muhammad. And so they, that would be like a perfect dictation. Um, and so the Quran is central to the life of the Muslim. And ultimately, this is why you might see a level of devotion in Islam to the Quran that sometimes is lacking in Christianity because they like they genu genuinely believe like this is the word straight from the mouth of God. And and what that leads us to is something that's really important in understanding the Quran is that the place that the Quran holds in the life of Muslims is more similar to the place of Christ in regards to like what John one says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Um, you'll hear Jesus compared to Muhammad all the time, right? That we, we put Muhammad in Islam where Jesus is in Christianity. That's false. Sometimes Muslims will do that. Like they place a level of supremacy on Muhammad that's inappropriate, even in the context of, of Islam. Muhammad wrote in the Quran, like, I am nothing but a prophet. Um, like Muhammad even wrote in the Quran, like he wasn't sure if he was going to go to heaven. Um, so we know that like, Muslims should not venerate Muhammad as much as they do, even by their own standards of what's written in their own holy book, but they do. Um, and, and a lot of that is because Muhammad was writing those things, but he was living out a life that basically like he made himself out to be a king. He made himself out to be a savior. Um, but, but ultimately in, in the Quran, we see that the most comparable thing in Islam to how Christians hold Jesus is the Quran. The Quran is the unadulterated word of Allah, and it is a reflection of the true word of Allah that exists in heaven. And so it's, it's really an amazing thing when you really begin to understand in the life of the Muslim, the, the role of the Quran is much more similar to the role of Jesus in the life of the Christian. Um, but back to Jesus in the Quran, in the Quran, Jesus is referred to in over 90 verses in 15 surahs. Like, so a surah is like 
a chapter. Um, and so I'll just read a few of you, um, a few to you to give you an idea. Um, Surah 4171 says, Oh, people of the book in the Quran, Christians and Jews are called people of the book. Um, Commit no excesses in your religion, nor say of Allah anything but the truth. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than a messenger of Allah and his word, which he bestowed on Mary and a spirit proceeding from him. So believe in Allah and his messengers. Say not Trinity desist it will be better for you for Allah is one Allah or you know it's saying for God the Arabic word for uh, God is Allah for God is one God glory be to him and far exalted is he above having a son so central to the Islamic faith is denial that God would ever have a son and so they make you know they make the claim early on in, in the fourth uh you know book of of the the Quran they, they, they draw a line this and they say there is no trinity Allah would never have a son and there's only one God and, and if you're a Christian listening to this you have to realize Muslims think we're polytheists because of the trinity so we see a denial of the divinity of Christ right away uh, later on actually earlier on in, in Surah 4 uh, they said in boast we killed Christ Jesus the son of Mary the messenger of Allah but they killed him not nor crucified him but so it was made to appear to them and those who differ therein are full of doubts. So interestingly enough, if you really want to know what the Quran says about Jesus, it actually says he was never crucified, but it made it appear that way. And so there's a million theories over what this means. One of them being that someone else took Jesus's place on the cross and that he was killed on the cross. There's another theory that basically says, you know, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He, he basically just like, you know, went on conscience. And so, uh, but the Quran very early on says Jesus was not killed on a cross. It only looked that way, which leads to all sorts of questions. Is like, what kind of God would lie like that? What kind of God would deceive people that his, his prophet, you know, looks like he was killed, but he actually wasn't. And so it says that about Jesus. Um, it, it says in the 61st Surah, uh, Jesus, the son of Mary said, Oh, children of Israel, I'm the messenger of Allah sent to you confirming the law, which came before me giving glad tidings of a messenger to come after me, whose name shall be Ahmad, which is Muhammad. And so in the 61st uh, section of, of the Quran, you see that Jesus is prophesying that somebody would come after him. And he's prophesying that Muhammad would come. Uh, Muslims would, would point in the Christian New Testament saying that when Jesus says that there will be one who comes after me, a helper, or in Greek, the paraclete, almost uniformly Christians would say that he's talking about the Holy spirit. Well, Muslims are bold enough to say that that's Muhammad. So that Jesus, they say Jesus was prophesying that Muhammad is the helper that is to come. So you begin to see just kind of how Muslims specifically Muhammad early on began to warp the message of Christianity and began to usurp the words of Christ in saying, no, when Jesus was talking about the Holy spirit, he was actually talking about Muhammad and saying, you know, that he prophesied even uh, that Muhammad would come. And so, so the difference uh, to, to the question is the difference in Jesus uh, in the New Testament and in the Quran is about as different as you can possibly be. We're not really talking about the same guy. Muslims have a very high view of Jesus, but ultimately he is not God. He is not the savior. He did not die on a cross. So therefore he was not resurrected. And so when people try and however well-intentioned they might be to 
combine Christianity and Islam and say, look, you guys talk about Jesus. You both like Jesus so much. I stop and say, we're not talking about the same person. We are not talking about God. We're not talking about somebody who rescued us. We are talking about somebody in the Quran who was just one of many other prophets on par with Noah and Moses. And those are, those guys are great, but they are not saviors. They are not messiahs. They are not divine. They did not forgive me of my sin. They did not give me their righteousness because they had no righteousness to give. And so the Jesus of the Quran is nothing but a charade of the actual Jesus, the historical Jesus who was God. And so uh, to, to my Muslim friends, if I, if you're, if you're listening, I, I would encourage you read the Christian new Testament and see if, if it actually lines up with what the Quran says about Jesus. And I know that many Muslims are going to say the new Testament was corrupted before you say that, read it and see what you, what you think. And I promise you that the Holy spirit is going to say things to you and show you things that you've never heard in your mosque, that you've never heard your Imam say, and things are going to be revealed to you that are going to blow you away about Jesus. Because I, I promise you, Jesus is the most interesting person and the way that most Muslims venerate Muhammad that plus infinitely more veneration and worship is how Christians should view Jesus. Now, most, most of us mess up at times, but I promise you now, if you're a Christian listening, I want you to look at the devotion that Muslims hold Muhammad in the Quran and, and ask yourself, do I hold Jesus that highly in my life? Do, do I venerate Jesus? Do I think him, think him that important in my life? Be challenged by false gods and how other people worship them. Because if they're worshiping false gods that ferociously and you are sitting here saying that you believe Jesus Christ rescued you from your sins, but yet you don't give him the time of day, I challenge you to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of that sin. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. Um, and so so here we see, okay, so this this topic of holy books, I, I, I challenge you begin dabbling a little bit in understanding what other faiths believe about their, their scriptures, um, what they believe about their texts. And, and sometimes we'll talk more about the, the Eastern faiths because those are interesting. And, and the way that they hold their, their texts is, is a lot different than the way we hold ours. Um, and so, so if you enjoyed this, uh, make sure to share it with somebody. Um, if you have a way to review podcasts, go give it five stars and, and say something nice there in the comments. Uh, it's only going to help other people hear what you just heard and things like it. Be on the lookout. We have a great guest next week. So I'm excited for you to hear what she has to say, and I'm excited to interview her. Um, and so uh, once again, thank you for listening to the All Things All People podcast, where we interview Christian thinkers or we're just Christians thinking. So today, we hopefully you thought with me because I know I'm a little bit tired through thinking all that. But thank you for your questions and follow me at allthings.allpeople on Instagram so that you can have an opportunity to ask questions next time or email me uh, at jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org. Check out my website, allthingsallpeople.org and uh, get in touch. Let me know how you're doing and, and anything else you want to hear on the podcast. But until next time, I'll see you. Thank you.